Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's Monday, March 6th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Whether you're a busy professional couple, a large family that runs at a breakneck pace, or someone who simply wants to start cooking more, HelloFresh makes it easier, tastier, and healthier than ever to enjoy the experience of cooking new recipes and eating together at home. Each week, they create new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes. They source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed, so there's no food waste. They deliver all this to your doorstep in a special insulated box for free. To get $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter Inquiring Minds when you subscribe. So this week is particularly exciting for me from a music in the brain perspective, because tomorrow at City Arts and Lectures in San Francisco, you can come and hear me talk to Charles Lim and hear the SF Jazz High School All-Stars as we talk about improvisation and the brain. Charles is a pioneer of a number of different types of surgeries to restore hearing, but also a expert in this idea of how music interacts in your brain, especially around jazz, right? I know. It's super cool. So I'm super excited. So that's Tuesday, March 7th. For those of you that live in the Bay Area, I think there's still a few tickets left. And the second episode of my new podcast, Cadence, is out now. And in it, we talk about uh, what are the universals in music. And I'm really proud of that episode, too. And so it, of course, everything comes together when it rains, it pours. This week, we also snagged another great guest on Inquiring Minds, and he's a returning guest. We last heard from him back in episode 55, and he is neuroscientist, music producer, and best-selling author Dan Levitin. He recently teamed up with Sonos, the producers of in-home stereo systems, to understand how playing music in the home might affect us. Wait, why does a speaker manufacturer 
think about neuroscience? Well, that's a good question. I can't tell I can't tell you exactly why <laughs> Sonus was interested other than of course to show that, you know, playing music in the home might be beneficial to us and that would be beneficial to them because then we would all go out and get really high quality sound systems. But you know, there's also a trend, of course, of industry and science pairing up, especially when it's hard to get funding from the government uh, for various projects. And the neuroscience of the arts is one of those topics that doesn't tend to generate a lot of funding from the government. Well, do you think that we can make a better speaker using neuroscience? I mean, certainly, we if we understand how our auditory system picks up noise in a room, that's going to be helpful. So can neuroscientists help make speakers better? Sure. But I actually think we're already there. I mean, I think, you know, it's more like, how much of your home do you want to change in order to make the sound? I mean, we, you know, you could build a studio in your home, and it could sound amazing. Or you could build a concert hall in your home. But to me, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, here's Dan Levitin, who's last who actually has a book in between <laughs> that book and today. But uh, the, you know, the organized mind was all about how we are bombarded with information. And you would think that adding more stimulation into the home would not necessarily be something that we would be striving for that, you know, it could actually harm us in terms of our ability to focus, you know, our connection with each other. Um, and so when I first heard about the results of the study, I was surprised and excited. And so I wanted to talk to him about it. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Dan Levitin. This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. Whether you're a busy professional couple, a large family that runs at a breakneck pace, or someone who simply wants to start cooking more, HelloFresh makes it easier, tastier, and healthier than ever to enjoy the experience of cooking new recipes and eating together at home. From creating the recipes and planning the meals, to grocery shopping and even delivering all of the pre-measured ingredients, HelloFresh delivers right to your door so you can skip the trip. Each week they create new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone, from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. They source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. They have two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it is nutritionally balanced. I'm one of these people who, for the last couple of years, has spent very little time cooking at home. And I have to say, with HelloFresh, it makes it much easier and a lot more fun. I get my three-year-old son involved. He helps me put in the pre-measured ingredients, so it's super easy. And uh, we cook as a family, and it makes it much more fun. And frankly, we get more quality family time out of it. To get $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter Inquiring Minds when you subscribe. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Daniel Levitin. Oh, thanks for having me. So I want to jump right in and hear about this study that you did with Sonos. Um, our listeners are already familiar with some of your work, as I've talked about you on the podcast before, and we've had a conversation with the Commonwealth Club. But this Sonos project is a new one. Well, it's, it's, uh, I have a relationship with Sonos going back several years, and they first asked me to listen to one of their loudspeakers some years ago. And I thought, oh no, not this again. I'm get I get inundated by loudspeaker manufacturers, and I usually don't like them. And then I have to figure out a nice way to tell them that I don't like them. And so this box arrived, and um, I had a little bit extra time the same day, and I hooked it up. 
And it was really amazing because all of my cognitive biases were, I'm not going to like this. It's small, it's wireless. But within a very short time, I had a similar experience to what Hans Zimmer and Giles Martin, the great producer Giles Martin had, which was I stopped realizing that I was listening to a speaker and I just closed my eyes and I got immersed in the music. And um, it was really, it was a, an astonishing experience for me. And um, a year ago, uh, Sonos reached out and asked if I would help them design an experiment that would look at the effects of music out loud in the home. And uh, we did that. And then more recently, we got together again and probed uh, through a survey 9,000 people in nine different countries to look at what was going on with what, what we call the silent home. To, to what extent are homes silent, that is devoid of music and conversation and, um, you know, shared auditory experience uh, versus, you know, having the kinds of experiences that historically homes have had with, with music and conversation playing out loud. And um, we learned quite a bit from the study, and, and uh, I was happy to be able to do some science uh, with them again. So, you know, one of the awesome things about partnering with these big companies, of course, is the access to so many participants, <laughs> which for us psychologists and neuroscientists for a long time, you know, if you had 20 people in your study, you know, if it was neuroimaging, that was that was pretty great. Um, but now you're talking about 9,000 people or 30,000 people. So what were some of the concerns that you had, given the fact that with such a big sample size, you know, you have much less control over who it is that you're choosing to participate in the study? Well, what we want as neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists, of course, is um, a random sample. And as you know, uh, and many of your, our listeners know, um, there's no such thing as the law of small numbers. It's actually the law of large numbers, and you want as many people as you can get. And as we saw with the polling fiasco in the U.S. elections, and in fact, the Brexit vote last fall, the problem of getting a random sample is difficult. And having access to 9,000 or 30,000 people, uh, yeah, they have to be computer users uh, in order for this to work. But, you know, almost everybody is now. It's not like you were doing a random sample of computer users 25 years ago, which tended to skew towards a certain kind of person. And we had a thousand people in each of nine different countries, the US, Canada, Australia, the UK, China, Germany, France, Netherlands, Sweden. And so we were getting a nice cross section of, of countries represented. Um, and as you point out, you know, these industry academic partnerships are really important because they provide resources that even, you know, scientists like you and I who are well funded, we're not well-funded enough to do that. <laughs> so uh, it's kind of like um, my colleagues in medical science who will collaborate with a pharmaceutical company where um, the financial power of the company allows you to do real science in a way that you can't do one person at a time in a university laboratory. 
One of the really compelling things about such a large sample and a study of how music affects us, of course, is that music is so subjective. Uh, we all have different preferences. And, you know, to create a kind of experience in the lab is very difficult, given the fact that you're going to need to curate a different playlist for every one of your participants. So that to me was one of the compelling things about these two studies. So let's talk about the first one. This is the online uh, survey, which uh, is about, about 30,000 people who are smartphone users. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So what were they asked? And uh, what were the main results? Well, I would like to uh, back up and just add to, to what you were saying about the issue of control versus what we call ecological validity. And this is something you and I have had many productive conversations about in the past, um, there's always this underlying tension in any scientific experiment where, and we see this in physics all the time, but certainly in behavioral science, where you're afraid that um, the act of observing is going to influence the outcome, right? Uh, and you bring somebody into a laboratory and they might well behave very differently than they behave in their homes or in the real world. Uh, we see this particularly in music studies where people sometimes don't relax enough to really enjoy the music in the lab. There's a bunch of people in white coats and there's humming machinery and such. But um, these kinds of ecologically valid studies, at least the ones I've done with Sonos, uh, you can't control what the people listen to. They can listen to whatever they want. But I see that as a feature rather than a limitation of the study. So in the, in the first study we did a year ago in partnership with Apple Music, we asked 30,000 people to fill out a survey about their listening habits. And then that informed us to actually do an intervention in 30 homes where we did a, a controlled experiment. We had people without music for a week in their homes, uh, and we collected a bunch of measures, like using uh, Apple beacons. We were able to see how close they were to one another in the home, You know how many feet apart they were or inches apart. We were able to um, use their Apple iWatches and iPhones to get physiological measures like heart rate and um, things like that. and. We had people in their homes without music for a week, and then they had Sonos in the home playing out loud for a week. And that was remarkable. It turns out that listening to music out loud leads to stronger relationships, more intimacy. People who listened out loud together eat more meals together. They clean more together. 34% cleaning the dish, you know, 34% cleaning dishes together more. 19% more spontaneous dance parties. 17% more saying, I love you within the week. And they had three times more sex. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, they say music is medicine. And in a sense, this is like a kind of a really interesting study that shows that not just for people who are sick, but rather for anyone that can improve quality of life. Yeah. I mean, it turns out music works like Viagra, it seems. Without the, <laughs> Maybe, without the, without without the, the side, side effects. <laughs> without the side effects and the blue aura, yeah. which I've only read about. I have no personal experience, of course. It's just that. <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, what do you think accounts for these results? Well, that's a good question, and this is something you and I devote a large part of our life to, uh, trying to understand. 
I think that it, I'm always looking for an evolutionary explanation. And evolutionarily, over tens of thousands of years, music was a participatory experience. Uh, the idea of being able to sequester yourself and listen in your own earbuds or on your own personal device is obviously a new thing. So I think that we're getting in touch with uh, the echoes of our ancient evolutionary selves and the the very reason that music and humans co-evolved as they did was that it conferred a number of advantages when it was shared, meaning when it was out loud and, and communal. And so do you think that it's because it's not just that people are, you know, their mood is elevated because they're listening to music. It's really something about it being shared as opposed to everyone listening to their own smartphone and their own playlist. Yeah, and I think some of the evidence that the shared musical experience is important comes from an unlikely or, well, underappreciated source. When when personal earbuds first showed up um, some years ago and, and people, and you'd, you'd go on a subway and everybody would be off in their own musical world, uh, and music wasn't for, you know, for the first time in centuries, music wasn't shared, a funny thing happened these sharing groups started popping up on the internet, right? Where people would share playlists with each other. It's as though they couldn't stand to have music just be private. They had to let other people know what they were listening to. And then you would subscribe to other listeners' playlists and, you know, set up a virtual community of sharing. Yeah, and it, it still seems that even though we can buy whatever music we want at our fingertips, uh, there doesn't seem to be a reduction in people going to concerts, ultimately. I mean, maybe certain genres have experienced lower, you know, audience rates, but, you know, on the whole, it's, is it, you know, is there is there any evidence that we go to fewer concerts now? I, I certainly haven't seen any. You know, I don't know what the data are on that, but, um, and I, I, I think you'd want to control for, I mean, maybe it's not the number of concerts, but the number of people who go to concerts, because there might be fewer of these big outdoor festivals and stadium shows than there were in the heyday. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, my impression is that more people are going to concerts. We'd have to look at the data on that. Yeah. But cer certainly you can say that concert going is an active uh, thing. There's no, no evidence that um, the industry is shutting down. And, you know, given that we're on a podcast and it seems like podcasts are becoming more popular, is it uh, really about shared listening of music? Or do you think that listening to an episode of a podcast would have a similar effect? Well, that's an empirical question. But my hunch is that listening to podcasts or radio dramas, news, uh, talk shows out loud, Anything to avoid the, the emerging epidemic of the silent home, we found in this recent study, the 9,000 people in nine countries, 67% indicated they're living in a silent home, a place where the absence of music exacerbates the stress and pressures of modern life, but not just the absence of music, the absence of shared communicative auditory experiences, a home where people are living side by side, but not really together. Why is it that it doesn't seem then that a silent home leads to more conversation, which would be kind of what I would have expected? Why do you think that is? I think that what's happening is people are getting lost in a world of their own devices. 
there's sort of this factor of, of uh, many homes now have a more open architecture than homes used to have. We tend to retreat into our own spaces and in our own digital devices. And so that's why we're seeing the effects we are. And uh, in our in this recent study, 62% say more of their social interactions are digital. 46% of the people, of 9,000 people, acknowledge that um, people in their homes spend more time interacting with technology than with each other. Do you think that the results of a study like this is going to lead to more people sort of including music? Or do you think that this is an irreversible trend where we're going into our own little tech worlds and that homes are going to become more and more silent? Well, I, I think we, we certainly crave social interaction, which is why when you are waiting in line, uh, you're likely to check Facebook or text somebody. I mean, even if you're at a dinner party and it gets boring, you're likely to text somebody who's not there. So you can have a social interaction at that very second that you're not having a real one. You can at least have a virtual one. I think that the advantage of studies like this is that they show us empirically um, what the benefits are of real, actual social interaction as opposed to virtual ones. And I, I think that the other factor um, that's perhaps underappreciated is that some products like Sonos make it really easy to have the music in the home. I had an experience that, that I've shared with others. And whenever I share this, um, dozens of people say, oh, well, this happened to me. And that is that I w I've re I'm really into music and I, I have a conventional stereo system, but it's complicated to use it. It's in one room of the house. And unlike my college days where I, you know, I did everything in one single dorm room, you know, I now have a, a place with more than one room. And it, the music didn't sound good in the kitchen, you know, coming in from the living room. And if I was in the bedroom, it sounded even worse. And so the revolution of Sonos to me was that I could have music in all the rooms of my house. And the technology was absolutely plug and play. I, I plugged it in and it just worked. There was, there was nothing complicated about it. Every once in a while, the software phones home and updates itself and improves itself. Um, the Apple Music was the, a major improvement a year ago where I could now be streaming through Apple Music. And I, I've got 20,000 songs on my hard disk and they're available all the time. My wife can hear something in her office while I'm listening to something different in my office. The, I think that the, the ease of use is a big, um, a, a great example of how the technology has facilitated a social interaction rather than hindering it. And what I mean by that is the old technology, the hi-fi system, you know, friends would come over, they didn't know how to work it. Uh, now friends come over, they can just control it from an iPhone. It's, it's a completely different thing. In some ways, the results of this study were surprising to me because I've been in households where the television is always on or, you know, at airports. And I find it really annoying um, and very difficult to focus on anything when, you know, my attention is continuously being pulled towards the television. And 
it's amazing that you know music, even if it's NPR, like doesn't it doesn't seem that way at all. That I'm I'm much more successful at ignoring what's going on in the radio if I need to, if I need to focus in on on a conversation or, or so forth. What do you think is the difference between our visual and our auditory systems that you know allows us to sort of seamlessly both listen in and ignore uh, auditory noise, but not visual noise? You know, I guess that it has to do with the startle response and. Have you had Joe Ledoux on your program? No, we haven't, but that's a great suggestion. <laughs> yeah, so Joe Ledoux is is kind of the expert on the amygdala, and he's pointed out that the amygdala is not the fear center. It's sort of the alert center, the social and, and situational salience center of the brain. The amygdala is part of the uh, limbic system. And it's true that if you have amygdala damage, you you know no fear. You become fearless. But... You also be, you can uh, lose affect and emotion by losing the amygdala. And my guess is that there's something about the visual startle system that, um, you know, a shiny object or a sudden moving object captures your attention. But we see that in the auditory system too. A sudden loud noise will capture your auditory attention. If you're listening to NPR and suddenly there's an explosion, uh, uh, through on the NPR, even if you thought you weren't listening, that'll grab your attention um, through the well-known, you know, as you know, uh, the the Broadbent Treisman attentional filter. Sure, and yet there's still I don't know there's still it's something kind of funny about... talking it's kind of funny talking to a neuroscientist who knows all of this stuff because <laughs> I have to pretend that you don't know it and I'm explaining it to you, but you know well, you, but... <laughs> you know a lot of this stuff better than me. Uh, well, that, I don't think that's true, but certainly it's it's yeah, it's good for our, our listeners to be reminded, and and me too. Um, I also you know have students who swear by listening to music when they're studying, um, or even at times you know admitting sheepishly that they were watching television while they were studying for a test, and inevitably they don't do very well on the test. If that's the case, but you know, music seems to give them that little boost of arousal that they need to continue to pay attention. So, you know, what do you think about the use of music as a kind of study aid? Well, so. Here's the problem. Studying is sometimes boring. And when you get bored, your physiological arousal system uh, slows down. You've got less uh, less dopamine, less of, a, of a, a collection of chemicals that help keep you alert and awake. And you can find yourself nodding off. And the right music, maybe not Enya, but, you know, maybe, maybe something a little bit uh, higher energy, can um, keep your neurons firing. We know that neurons fire in synchrony with the rhythm or the tempo of music. We know that the right music can you know, recharge you and enliven you, which is why athletes use it to get through a workout. The problem is that some music, if it's too captivating, will split your attention. And in almost every case, listening to music while you're studying is a bad idea because it does fractionate your attention. But if you're doing something repetitive and super boring, like driving a truck on a freeway, as long as there's no, um, no danger, no unexpected um, occurrence, that little bit of arousal you get from the music actually helps and, and is a benefit because it avoids you nodding off. So there's a delicate tension here. If you're going to listen to music, I'd, rest, I'd recommend listening to music that doesn't... Um, absorb you too much because, uh, you know, le le attention's a limited capacity resource. 
And of course, there are ways in which music can help you remember things if you kind of do it strategically. So, you know, there's a there's a company I've been um, consulting for a little bit called Rock to the Core, uh, which literally creates songs on based on concepts in the core curriculum uh, to aid teachers in, you know, helping students remember these concepts. And so far, the preliminary evidence is not surprisingly pretty compelling. Um, as we all know, you know, how do you learn your ABCs? Well, you sing a song about it. <laughs> and the body parts, right? You put yeah. your right foot in, you put your right foot out, you do the hokey pokey. <laughs> and that, Indra, is what it's all about. <laughs> I, that, and that's my son keeps telling me that. <laughs> True. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that you can, it can be used as a, as a very powerful mnemonic device. And, well, sure. You know, some... Like we learned from Steven Spielberg's Animaniacs, right? United yeah. States, Canada, Mexico, Panama, Haiti, Jamaica, Peru. <laughs> yeah. And when people ask me, you know, why that's the case, the answer I give is, you know, just there's another kind of hook for you to to tag onto that it's a little bit like the method of loci of remembering where, you know, it gives you a sequence that through which you can create the next retrieval cue. But do you, do you have a better explanation <laughs> for why that might be the case? I have another explanation, but I don't think it's as good as yours. I like yours. Uh, mine is just that the mutually, it's twofold, the mutually reinforcing cues of melody, rhythm, accent structure, and rhyme create constraints such that not just any word will fit into the melody. So because the words bind to the melody in prescribed and constrained ways, um, it's very easy to remember well-formed lyrics and information that's in contained in lyrics. And again, getting back to evolution, we've existed as a species for tens of thousands of years without written language. And the evidence is that music was the way that we kept track of important information that we needed to memorize before we could write it down. And so that is that what you're thinking about where this cultural aspect or this group uh, aspect of music comes in is that, you know, it's about generating a collective memory of the things that a particular group is learning? Yes, I think that in addition to knowledge uh, being encapsulated by a community or a tribe or a family, music also served other functions communally like bonding. We bond through certain songs, patriotic songs, or the song of our sports team. You know, it's, it's almost unthinkable that there would be a political rally without some music, right? And this points to a different system, and it really underscores, I think, a lot of the Sonos findings, which is the oxytocin story. There's evidence that oxytocin is released when people listen to music together. Oxytocin is the hormone that's released in both mothers and infants during nursing, and it's um, a social saliency hormone that can help create tight bonds between individuals. It's also the hormone that's released during orgasm. And the fascinating thing about that is there's some evidence that it's only released when you have an orgasm with another person, not if you have an orgasm alone, meaning that its purpose is to tie people together and if if it's released when we listen to music together, that's another uh, piece of evidence for the social bonding function of music. Yeah, and in some ways, music can be used to not just for good, but for inciting violence as well. There are plenty of situations in the past where you know music is, especially heavy metal music, perhaps is blamed for getting a, a, a crowd riled up, or you know, and so on. 
So why do you think music has such a a strong, powerful connection to our emotions that just say chanting, you know, the same words. I mean, that's that can be powerful, too, but not quite as powerful as adding, you know, an, a, a sort of strong melody or, or some other kind of aspect of music. Well, I think that um, it's part of the answer is because uh, getting back to constraints again, all the musical scales that we've studied have a limited number of tones. Our Western musical scale has 12 Reports that some um, East Asian and Indian uh, musics had 48, 50 tones, those turn out not to be technically true. There's really just 15 tones, and the others are ornaments and embellishments. So musical scales have this small number of tones, which creates, again, a constraint in the way that language is constrained. And those constraints allow us to express ourselves very richly in that people who are listening to what we're expressing musically can make predictions about what's going to happen next, because there aren't that many ways it could go. So in language, if I say to you, Indra, the pizza was too hot to blank, (laughs) there aren't that many ways you can finish the sentence. (laughs) You want to try? Uh, Eat. And? (laughs) Um, uh, Gosh, I don't know. Well, right. A limited number, maybe touch. Lift, yeah, touch. Yeah. Yeah, but right. You're not going to be saying the pizza was too hot to sleep. No. <laughs> and in music, I could go, ba-da-da-da-da-da-da. And there's really only a, a small number of ways <laughs> that you can finish that sequence that are going to sound right. Right. And if you choose one of the wrong ones, you better hurry up and do something to fix it in the rest of the melody. The old Bill Evans trick of playing a wrong note and then fixing it somehow. So I think that part of music's emotional power is that because of the constraints, it's participatory. Listeners are going along for the ride, and the brain is making predictions about what's going to come next. And that makes it an interactive experience. It's truly interactive. And even though we don't consciously know we're doing it, we're, you know, part of our prefrontal cortex in all of us is listening to figure out what's going to come next. And this also ties into the Sonos findings. We found in the first study we did in partnership with Apple Music that people were more likely to want to talk about music and share music with each other when they had the opportunity to do it out loud in the home, when they could break the silent home. Um, And it's because, based on the anecdotes we heard, you know, the, the stories that people told us during debriefing, you know, fathers and mothers would want to share their musical taste with their kids and vice versa, precisely because they had different expectations for how the music was going to go. Was there any evidence that there was some kind of conflict resolution that began to happen as people were sharing different types of music? I mean, that's sort of one thing that I've always wondered, whether music can serve to overcome differences between groups uh, with a shared experience. Well, um, we didn't look at that directly, but we did find that people spent more time together and they reported that they were happier. Uh, yeah, they did report fewer conflicts, uh, and, uh, actually, as a matter of fact. And this relates to some, an- some of the animal literature that you're probably familiar with. Rats who were exposed to a stressful auditory environment, which in this case, in a nature neuroscience paper uh, by uh, Goins, This involved bright lights and Iggy Pop CDs. 
And I'm sorry, not uh, Goins. It was a Barrage, a Kent Barrage study. Um, they heard bright. They heard Iggy Pop CDs, or they had bright flashing lights. And the fear areas in the nucleus accumbens in the rats increased, whereas a familiar and quiet, soothing environment decreased the size of the fear areas, and it increased their appetite. Not to the point of obesity, but to, you know, to normal levels. There's some fear amongst musicians uh, with the current administration that some organizations like the National Endowment for the Arts are going to go away in the next few years. Do you see Sonos or Apple Music as potentially being willing to fill some of the funding voids that uh, the NEA, you know, the absence of it might leave, leave behind? Or um, is that something that you think is, is going to be a big, irreplaceable loss? Well, you know, the, the NEA budget being cut is, is an entirely political move in terms of the budget because it's 0.06. It is six one hundredths of a percent of the federal budget. So it's not actually going to make any difference uh, budgetarily. It's really a political move. And so I'm sad to see that that's on the table by the current administration. If I were Trump, I would double down on arts education because that's what, you know, he's talked about wanting to be the president for all of us. And it turns out a lot of the people who oppose him are proponents of the arts. And one way to soften them up would be to double the arts budget. And it, and it really wouldn't cost very much in terms of the overall budget. Um, I don't know what industries like Sonos and Apple Music are going to do, but I think that without them doing anything explicitly, if they just keep on doing what they're doing, we're going to see uh, an increase in arts production because technologies like uh, Music Out Loud in the Home technologies like Sonos and streaming music and Apple and Pandora and Spotify allow artists to reach a wider and wider audience. And because of the long tail phenomenon, they allow an artist uh, who might have only a small but rabid following to hear them, to find them. You no longer have the gate, traditional gatekeepers or barriers of the old days where you had to find a big record company to produce this petroleum product in a plant in Terre Haute, Indiana, and then put it back on the backs of petroleum consuming 18 wheelers and send it out to retail stores. The, you know, the electrons fly around for free. So, you know, a band in the middle of nowhere can reach a following that is willing to support it, largely because we have streaming music and ways to play it in every room of the house. And yet, you know, these streaming services have not been very kind to artists. And, you know, they, the amount of royalties that get paid out seem to be really kind of pitiful. Do you see that trend continuing? Or do you think that will, you know, that, that funding artists now is moving more towards a kind of crowdfunding model like Patreon or, you know, Kickstarter for specific projects? Well, I, I'm not speaking now as an expert or a neuroscientist, but um, if I can put on my hat as a former record company executive and songwriter, I think that we're at a crisis point for musicians. By one calculation, in order to earn the annual salary of the average Spotify employee, a songwriter would have to have their song streamed a quarter of a billion times, 250 million times in a year. And that just doesn't happen. And 
I, li I like living in a world where songwriting is a profession where you can make a living as a songwriter or as a violinist or pianist. And it's increasingly becoming the case that musicians can't live without having a side job. I don't want to live in a world where, where uh, you know, the next Paul Simon has to wait tables and come home exhausted and write songs after all of that. So I think that we need to fix that. And I'd like to see, and I've advocated for legislation that actually changes the way that artists are paid. And I've talked publicly about this. I testified in front of Congress, uh, Congressional Subcommittee, I mean, that all we have to do is charge a tenth of a cent per play. And we'd create the billions of dollars that are lost through piracy and unauthorized playbacks, and artists could make a living again. And there are a lot of technologies to do that. The hardware manufacturers could have a smart chip that just keeps track of what music you're listening to, and they could phone home once a month and allocate royalty payments on the basis of that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great idea. And, uh, you know, I hope that gets implemented as a, a person who likes to make music. Yeah, I'd like you uh, to get paid for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, any I'll, final... I'll pay you a tenth of a cent right now. <laughs> Well, thank you. Um, any final comments about uh, this study or, or the work that you have coming up? Oh, well, I think that one of the nice things about this is that um, Sonos is really interested in the science, in that they, they're willing to fund scientific research. And regardless of how the science comes out, they're interested in the answer. I mean, it's true that if the answer can help them, they'll use it in their marketing but if the answer doesn't help them, they're still interested in the science. And I think that's the way industry academic partnerships should be. Well, on that note, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Daniel Levitin. It's always great to talk to you, Indra. So what do you think about his idea of just automatically charging you a tenth of a cent every time you listen to a song? Automatically charging me? Uh... I struggle with this because the idea of artists being fairly paid for their work is is important. Like I understand sort of the more morality of that argument. And at the same time, I'm I grew up on radio. Like it's just broadcast, it's free, it's there, it's pervasive. And the idea of every time I put in my headphones, I'm being charged somehow. Yeah, but you know, when you were listening to the radio, you had to sit through commercials in order to get those musicians paid ultimately, right? Um, if you were listening to commercial radio, and if you weren't listening to commercial radio, it was probably some kind of subscription system or like national public radio, which, by the way, is also potentially in trouble <laughs> in terms of its funding model going forward in the next four years. So I see where he's coming from. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I don't like the idea of a tiny, you know, cash register going cha-ching every time I hit play. And like, what happens if I don't listen to the song all the way through? Do I get like my quarter of a quarter of a quarter of a cent back? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I also think that, you know, we are going coming into an age where it's really, 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 really hard to make a, a living as a professional musician and something needs to give. I think this is one of those interesting places where we often talk about what we own and what we license out, which is kind of changing in this landscape. It's changing a lot in electronics. But oftentimes, you know, we would purchase music, like actually buy CDs, actually buy albums, 
those days seem to be largely behind us. I mean, I think the market for how many people actually purchase songs versus paying for these license, whether they're subscription or some other service, seem to be shifting now. And I think that shift in business model is creating this area of discomfort for all of these artists. Yeah, well, and also because those licensing fees right now are like, you know, not really compensating artists. <laughs> you know, the model before wasn't that much better. Right. Well, that's true. There were a lot of artists, or actually, I should say a few artists that were making a lot of money um, on the basis of selling a lot of records. But anyway, I definitely think that it's something that will have to change. Let me flip the script on you. What if every time you heard a lecture, you had to pay that fraction of a cent to... <laughs> Well, given that I uh, sell lectures, <laughs> I wouldn't be totally opposed to that. <laughs> I think that I think there's a fine line between entertainment, education, what we pay for, what is freely provided, what is what we need to do as an obligation to support sectors of our society that we want to see blossom. And on that note, I want to thank our own music producer, Rian Sheehan, who produces our great music. And uh, thank you for joining us for this installment. And of course, a special thank you to our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgool, Kyle Raihala, Joel Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk. Our music is provided by the amazing award-winning producer, Rhea Chiat. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. And once again, this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Whether you're a busy professional couple, a large family that runs at a breakneck pace, or someone who simply wants to start cooking more, HelloFresh makes it easier, tastier, and healthier than ever to enjoy the experience of cooking new recipes and eating together at home. Each week, they create new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes. They source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed, so there's no food waste. They deliver all this to your doorstep in a special insulated box, for free. To get $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter Inquiring Minds when you subscribe. The legends are true! With overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Wick nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.